there was a legendary chassid, great man by the name of Mendel Futterfass. Mendel Futterfass. He... Butter tub? Futterfass. Mendel Futterfass. Oh, 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 Futterfass. I thought it was Futterfass. Futterfass. That was his last name. He grew up in, in the Soviet Union and <clears throat> he came here eventually here. He came here to America. He passed away in 1995. Rabbi Brickman had the privilege of knowing him and learning a lot from him. But for a big part of his life, he lived in the Soviet Union during the times of the communists, where religion, especially the Jews, were, had lots of problems from the government acting as a religious Jew. <clears throat> and he was involved in the underground, underground, still teaching Jewish children Torah and have, making synagogues underground and secret and helping lots of Jewish people. And eventually he was arrested, I believe in 1949, and he was sentenced to many years in the gulag, in the Russian camps, in the Russian, you know, Siberia somewhere, working hard. And after many years, I think in 1974, uh, he was finally released, and he was uh, able to come, he came to London, and then came to America. Later on, he was in Israel, he lived in Israel, and he was a spiritual mentor in the yeshiva in Kfar Chabad, in Israel. You think he was arrested in 49 and released in 74? Yeah. He was arrested in 49. He was sent for many years to the camp. I think he was released from the camp, but he was still stuck in Russia. He wasn't able to leave. He applied. He was a, what do they call it, refusenik. And eventually, I think he was there maybe nine years in the camp. And then, you know, a couple of years until he was able to, to leave. He, would, he, was a, he was a spiritual mentor, and therefore, many times especially on holidays, special times, you would sit together with the Bokhrim, with the students, or, or uh, anyone who wanted to join, and you would have a Fabrengen. Fabrengen, a time when we sit together, we say some Lachayim, have some, something to eat, and sing melodies, and, and talk stories, and, and uh, you know, inspiration, for, for, especially for the young students. And many times he would share stories from what happened to him back uh, you know, in Russia, especially in the Gulag, in the camps. One of the stories that he shared was that they had certain hours, they would go out to work in the, in, in the camp, and then they would come in the evening and they had uh, some free time. So what did the inmates do in their free time? It wasn't much that was allowed to be done. And one of the things that was forbidden to do was to play cards. Oh. That was forbidden. The, the inmates were not allowed to have a good time, they are not allowed to uh, have a deck of cards. <coughs> But inmates, you know, they, were, they had enough time on their hands and uh, they were <laughs> exactly resourceful. And somehow, they, they, you know, they smuggled in a deck of cards. But it was forbidden to play with the cards. And there was always a guard, uh, you know, at the door watching. Somehow they got in our cards and they would play cards. Somebody let, it let the guard, somebody, uh, you know, told the guards that this group has a, a deck of cards. And Rabbi Mendel, Mendel was in that, he was in that barrack, that's where he was. And the guard comes in and he says, where's the cards? And everyone said, we don't have any cards. Nope. It's like, I'm somebody told me there's cards and they start, he, ser he searches everybody, no cards. Okay, maybe the guy was lying. But uh, a short while later, he gets told again, they're playing cards. He comes in again, searches, and this goes on time after time. And the guard gets really annoyed. One time he actually saw through the hole that they're playing cards. And he, could, he comes inside and, and they, he couldn't find. So they made a real thorough search. Everybody got up and they you know, take off their clothes and they had to they search every, every hiding place in the barrack. And there was nowhere, the cards were nowhere to be found. Where could they be? The guard gives up. Well, what could he do? And as soon as the guard leaves, Right away, the cards reappear, and they're playing again. And Mendel is watching this, and he can't figure out where where do the cards go. So finally, he, he tries to get them to let them let him in on the secret, and they tell him like this: "We are professional pickpockets. That's what we're here. They're criminals. They are pickpocketers. Pickpockets. And when these when this guard comes in, every time, what do we do? We take the deck of cards and we put it in his pocket." <laughs> 
And he can search the whole barrack, but he doesn't think to search himself. And as soon as he's about to leave, we get we take it right out of him. I mean, we pickpocket him and continue playing. So Raimendo would say, share this by Fabrengans. And he would say, what's the lesson of the story? When you have a problem, you're looking for, there's an issue, you're looking for something, start with yourself. Start with yourself. Look in your own pockets. Very good. Similar uh, story, they say, of a guy that came into a psychiatrist's office. This man <coughs> comes in and he says, uh, the doctor says, yeah, what's your problem? He said, I have no, I have no problem. I am Napoleon. He's, not, he's Napoleon. Like, okay, so what's your problem? I have no problem. I have everything. I have power. I have prestige. I have money. I have everything in the world. So why are you here? My wife has a problem. What's your wife's problem? So he says, I don't know. She thinks she's Mrs. Shorts. Shorts. She doesn't know that she's Mrs. Napoleon. He's not the problem. Everybody else is the problem. Sometimes the problem is in ourselves. So not the problem, or the, what needs to be corrected is in ourselves. So soon we'll see what that has to do with today's parasha. This week's parasha is the parasha of Shoftim, Judges. The fifth parasha in the book of Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy. And <coughs> we will begin... We'll begin um, today's lesson with an interesting question connected to judges. This week's parasha talks about judges, court system, the Jewish court system, and lots of laws in, uh, in reference to, to judges. And one interesting halacha, which is derived from a verse in this week's parasha, we're not going to go into the details how it's learned out, but it's based no, off... It's based off. Uh, want to take one for Josie? Oh yes. Oh yeah, take one for Josie. So we're not going to play cards. We're not going to play cards. Maybe we're going to look for the cards soon. <laughs> <laughs> so a, the first, source number one is a halacha, a law that is learnt out from a verse in this week's parsha without getting into details. How the Talmud tells us in Tractate Sanhedrin. If the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin, anybody know what a Sanhedrin is? Yeah, the group of 70. The group of the judges. 71 judges. 71? Yes, 71 judges. I believe 71 judges. Uh, Sanhedrin is actually a Greek word which uh, was adopted by the Jews during the Greek Empire. And about, what was it, 300 years BCE? Yes, Alexander the Great was the was emperor then. And at that time, the Jews were under their rule. And there were lots of words, even... The word synagogue is a Greek word, I believe. Sanhedrin is that, uh, I'm not sure what it means, but for some reason that's the, 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 the name given for the high court, the supreme court, if you can say, the, the Jewish supreme court. Sorry, actually, I just, said, remember when Moses appointed like the elders, it was 70, right? Right. So now it's 71. I believe it was 71 because they needed to have an, a... Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe it was 70. Yeah, it could be it was 70. <coughs> but uh, good memory. That was two weeks ago. So the Sanhedrin is the court, the high court. So if the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court deals with capital cases, cases that somebody can be uh, sentenced to death. And it happens in the Torah. So that's why they refer to the Sanhedrin. There was other small courts, you know, 23 judges, 3 judges, but the Supreme Court of 70 judges was in Jerusalem near the temple and they dealt with capital cases. So if the Sanhedrin unanimously agrees that a defendant is guilty in a capital case, he is acquitted. Doesn't sound right. Doesn't sound right. Everybody, all 70 judges say, excuse me, this guy committed murder. Yeah, that's it. He, you know, he needs to be killed. If unanimously and without any hesitation they all say yes we all are for this uh, for this person being guilty he is acquitted sounds extremely strange actually I think in, in US and other countries there are certain cases that it must be unanimous all of the court has to agree that he that he should that he is uh, that he is guilty and here the Torah says that if everybody agrees which seemingly is a, is a reason to think that there's no doubt he is for sure guilty because everybody agrees. There's no room for, for second thought. 
And here the Talmud tells us, and it's a Jewish law, that he is acquitted. Sounds absurd. It sounds backwards. Now the Torah obviously is not backwards. So we'll get to answer this soon. A, um, <clears throat> a suggested answer how we can explain this. There's no explanation. It's just learnt out of the verse. So you, can, you could say, this is the will of God. This is what it says in the Torah. Just like we don't mix the wool and linen because the Torah says, this is what the Torah says. But there must be some sort of uh, logic and the Kabbalah does explain this and this is, uh, we'll, we'll soon see one of the answers that is um, suggested for this law. That is one thing that is mentioned in the Parsha. And we always mention that the Parsha of the week is not just something that we study, but it's something, as we see in source number two, one must live with the time. This is a saying of the first Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Schneir Zalman, the Alter Rebbe, that one must live with the time. What does it mean to live with the time? One must live with the Parsha of the week. This is from the book Hayom Yom. Every day has a passage. And it has, this is one of the sayings, one must live with the Parsha. The upcoming Shabbos, we're going to be reading the Parsha. This week, we'll be reading the Parsha of Shoftim. So the whole week, we have to live with the Parsha. One should not only learn the weekly Parsha, but live with it. We are not just learning, yeah, that in the times of the Temple, when there was a high court, then if, a, if they all agree that a defendant was guilty, so he was acquitted. What does that have to do with me? I have to live with the Parsha. I have to live with the theme, the lessons, the idea behind the laws and the, and the mitzvahs in the Parsha. I have to live with it now. In this week, in 2018, and, and whenever we study it. So it's not just studying with it, we have to take the ideas of the parsha and live with it. In Yiddish we say, Leben mit der Zeit. To live with the times. Not just to be, you know, live with the modern, uh, you know, what's going on in the world around us. But to live re uh, the, the parsha of the week. Now because of that, because we have to live with the parsha of the week, it only makes sense that the, par the lessons of the parsha of the week have to do with the time of the year that that Parsha is being read, right? So let me give you an example. If around Pesach, we read the Parsha called Tzav in the book of Leviticus, Vayikra, right? So if I have to, in the, in the week of Pesach, that is the Parsha that I'm learning and that is the Parsha that I have to live with, so it must be that the lessons of that Parsha are connected to the theme of Pesach because that's the time of the year that I'm celebrating Pesach. I'm not just learning the Parsha, I'm living with it. And that has to become, you know, my, my inspiration for the week. So it makes sense that the Parsha of the week corresponds to the time of the year that it's being read. So that is a new idea which is taught us by the Shalah. Shalah was a, is a book written by Yeshaya, he was a Levi, Horowitz. He lived about uh, 350 years ago. He's buried in Tiberia near the Rambam. We spoke once about Maimonides being buried in Tiberias. He's buried there. It was emerited. Yeshaya. Shaya. Like the prophet Isaiah. And he was a Kabbalist and he, he wrote extensively and his works are brought many times. And the, in Chassidus, it, it brings this quote that the Parsha of the week, the lessons of the Parsha have to do with the time of the year it's being read. So say that we read the Parsha of Shoftim around this time of the year, there must be that the lessons that we learn from the Parsha of Shoftim have to do with the time of the year. Now what is special, what time of the year are we now? Almost August. It's almost a high holidays. We just began the month of Elul. Elul. Those of her last week, we, uh, by the Wednesday, we spoke about it a little bit, and I'll repeat briefly. We are in the month of Elul. Just like every week has the theme of the week, the parsha, the portion of the week is what is the inspiration for the week. So too, every month there is the theme of the month. We just this past Shabbos and Sunday was the Rosh Chodesh, the beginning of the month of Elul. There's 12 months on the Hebrew calendar. And we are now, and we just began the final month of the Jewish year, leading up to the high holidays to Rosh Hashanah, which will begin the new year, 5779. And the last month is called Elul. Every month, there's a new moon. The Jewish calendar follows mainly the, the lunar, it's a lunar calendar. And every month, there is the sighting of the new moon until it gets full in the middle of the month and the 15th and then it goes back down every month is something new there's a new moon there's a new light there's a new theme for the month an example I, I, I gave is the month of Adar we know Purim is in the month of Adar 
But we know the whole month is transformed. It says that what's the, the luckiest month for the Jews? It says if somebody has a court case, they should do it in the month of other. The whole month becomes a special month because that's the day that the Jews were saved from Haman and the whole month becomes a special month. That's the theme of the month. Every month has its theme. And the same thing with the month of Elul. The whole month of Elul has a theme of Elul, has a theme of preparation for Rosh Hashanah. That's the theme of the month. For what it's compared to, you know, some stores, you can go to them and you can make an account and just buy things on credit. And then every once in a while, at the end of the year, you pay up your bill. I know they have that in Crown Heights. Yeah, they, they, they trust you, so they, you know, it's a community. So you make, a, you make an account, you have your phone number, and then, you, you know, you don't have to always bring in your, for whatever reason, you can put it on credit. And then you come in every once in a while, at the end of the year, and you pay up the bill, and then you start again the next year. But what's going to happen if somebody buys on credit, and then at the end of the year, they don't pay up? What's going to happen? And <laughs> they're not going to sell to them next year. Yeah, we can't trust you anymore. Same thing as with us and Hashem. This is a parable uh, analogy that's brought. A whole year, Hashem gives us on credit. Hashem gives us sustenance. He gives us health. He gives us everything we need. Right? We wake up every morning. We're healthy. God gives us so much. But how much do we, we pay? Sometimes we don't always pay the full price. We get things and uh, He gives us a lot and we don't give back as much. So that's okay. We have at the end of the year to pay up. The end of the year before Rosh Hashanah, the new year when God is going to grant us another good year for all of us, it's time to pay up. Or if we don't pay up, I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe maybe uh, you won't want to you know, lend us again. You won't want to give us some credit. The month of Elul is that time when we come up, come in, and we, and we, uh, we, settle, we settle the deal. We settle our bills with God. God gave us so much during the year. The month of Elul is a time when we increase in Torah, in mitzvahs, in uh, strengthening our connection with Hashem. Can like I we spoke last week, giving extra tzedakah. Yes. Isn't that like a contradiction? Because all through the year, you do not extend the kindness to this one, to that one. You know people need or whatever. You, you are simply a very unkind person. Now it comes the end of the year. you got to make up for it. How do you... I mean... How do you answer? You make up for it in a second. You make up for it in a second? You could. I mean, if you had to save somebody or rush into a building or yell out the one word that God needed to hear at that moment. No, no, no. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the usual kindnesses that you should extend to anyone, which you just walk by and you figure, ah, nuts to him. Okay, so to answer that. Why look for the exception? First of all, we're talking more between man and God. And what's between man and his friend, yes, a person does have to go to those people that he wronged, did wrong to, and appease them. He cannot just say, God, forgive me for that I was bad for other people. This, what's between you and God is between you and God. That you can work out. I didn't, you know, whatever things you weren't perfect with God. But with a man and his friend, it says that a person must go before and appease his friend. But in general, that's the month of Elul. The month of Elul is a time... <clears throat> like it's hinted in the name. The name of the month is Elul. Elul in Aramaic means to go touring, like Brian goes. You go touring. What do you, what do, you do when you tour? You take your binoculars and you're looking around to the pyramids and to see what's going on. You observe. You, you take stock. You, you, look at, you look around to see what's going on. That's what happens in this month. Elul means to do that. You go touring on yourself. You say, let's see. Where, where, what's happening with my relationship with Hashem? Where can I improve? Where, what, what credit, what do I owe? What, what, what can I uh, strengthen myself in? Where can I grow? You look at yourself and you take stock of what's happening. Just like a business owner, at the end of the year, he'll see how much did we spend? How much did we make? What's going on? Are things working out? And the same thing is with, with Torah Mitzvahs, is our relationship with Hashem. This is the month as preparation for the high holidays. And that is why... During this month, we'll do it at the end of the class, we hear the shofar. Even though on Rosh Hashanah is the day that there's a biblical mitzvah to hear the shofar, where there's a custom around, uh, for all Jewish people that during the month of Elul, every day we, we sound the shofar a couple of blasts just to get us in the mode of the high holidays. And the shofar re reminds us like a cry of a child that steers our hearts and, and, and uh, 
helps us repent and, and better ourselves. Many have the custom to add in saying psalms during this month, giving extra charity, checking their mezuzah and their tefillin, and just making sure that uh, whatever mitzvahs they can be doing, can, whatever they can add or fix up, that is the best time for it. And we see in Source 3 why Elul is such a special time also. Not just because it's the last month of the year, but also <coughs> Source 3. Elul is a time when we reflect on where we stand and where we should be going. Bless you. It is called the month of repentance and forgiveness. On Rosh Chodesh Elul, the first, month, the first day of Elul, Moshe, Moses ascended to Mount Sinai for a third 40-day period until Yom Kippur when he descended with the second tablets and God's wholehearted forgiveness. These were days when God revealed to the Jewish people great mercy. We know, we spoke about this two weeks ago, that there was a sin of the golden calf. Moses went up for 40 days to stop God from destroying the Jewish people. And he said, erase me from the Torah, or look at our essence. We had that whole discussion. And then he went up for a third set of 40 days. The first set was to get the first tablets, then they were broken. The second set of 40 days was to get, stop God from destroying the Jewish people. And the third set was to get God's full forgiveness. And that what is what happened. He went on the first day of Elul, and he came down 40 days later on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is when God said, I forgive the Jewish people for the sin of the golden calf. That's why Yom Kippur for generations was, in, you know, the Torah makes this day the day of forgiveness. And the 40 days leading to that, those were the days that Moses was besieging God to, to forgive the Jewish people. And God, and God did forgive the Jewish people eventually. Those 40 days are auspicious days for, for repentance, for forgiveness. And that's why this month, the month of Elul, the first 30 days of this 40-day period, is a special time. So that is the time of the year when this parsha is being read. So as we preface, that the lessons that we're going to live with from this week's parsha have to be in sync with the theme of the time of the year, the, the month of Elul. So we'll get back to that in a minute. Now let's look at the Parsha. The Parsha talks about, we'll look at three ideas in a mitzvah that the Parsha talks about, maybe not so well known because it doesn't apply so, the, the, the simple meaning doesn't apply nowadays. The cities of refuge. What were the cities of refuge? Moses again is preparing the Jews to come into the land of Israel. And he tells them, you shall, and source number four, you shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land. Soon you're going to go cross over the Jordan River, you're going to settle the land of Israel, and you shall, you're going to have built cities, and three of the cities, you shall make three cities, you should separate them. What should you do with them? Source number five. This is the case of the killer who will flee there so that he may live. These three cities will be cities of ref refuge for a killer. Whoever, what kind of killer? Whoever strikes his fellow to death unintentionally, whom he did not hate in times past. How do we know that it was intentionally? Because it didn't, not someone that he hates. And not to get into all the details, you know, there's, there's different, you know, intentional killing, and then there's killing of carelessness, and then there's killing, there's different kinds of killing, but there was one specific case when he killed unintentionally, but there was a certain degree of carelessness, uh, something happened, and he wasn't extra careful, but he didn't mean to kill somebody, then that person, that killer, should flee to the, one of these three, these three cities of refuge. And once he gets to that city, he is protected from who we see in source six lest the avenger of the blood pursue the killer the relatives of the man that died of the victim will be really upset this guy just killed him killed his relative and he will want to kill this man so that killer has to flee to the, one of the cities of refuge once he gets into the city of refuge he's protected the, the avenger of the blood cannot kill him if he does kill him he gets killed so that's why it's called City of Refuge. While his heart is hot and overtake him because the way is long and he strikes him to death. So therefore... Excuse me. Yes. In the City of Refuge, is he able to bring his family with him to yes. live a normal life? Yes, he's able to live a normal life. And it actually says that even his teacher should move over there to be able to teach him. Ah. But this is what we see. The, um... Let's just do one more point, then we'll summarize. 
source number seven, who else was living in these cities? It wasn't a city just of killers. Who was living there? Among the cities you shall give to the Levites shall be the six cities of refuge. So really there were six cities. There was three cities in the land of Israel on the western side of the Jordan River. So if you look at a map of Israel, you have, if you're looking at a map, you have the Mediterranean Sea to the west, you have Israel, and then you have the Jordan River, you have the, the Kinneret, which is the, the, the sea in the Galil, you have the Jordan River, and then it goes into the Salt Sea, into Yam HaMelech. And the Jordan River, and then on the eastern border you have Jordan. So in biblical times, part of Jordan was actually part of, was, was part of Israel, and there was the western side, the western, sorry, the eastern side of the Jordanian River, where there was two and a half tribes living there, and then there was the west side of what Israel is today, the west side. So, <coughs> we'll see later that Moses himself designated three cities in the eastern border, in the eastern side of the Jordan River, and here Moses is telling, I can't cross over the Jordan River, he's going to die in, in the Jordan side, but Joshua will take, me, take him over, and when the Jews settle the land of Israel on the west side of the Jordan River, they shall designate an additional three cities, so a total of six. Is that clear? And those six cities should be given to the Levites to live. The Levites, the tribe of Levi, we had a class uh, you know, a couple months ago that the Levites did not have their own portion in the land of Israel. Right? And, one, and, and, and uh, these cities were given to them to live in. Okay, so four points here. Somebody kills. He kills unintentionally. Where does he go? To the city of refuge. When he's in the city, he cannot be... Anyone, no one is allowed to kill him. And those cities were inhabited by the Levites. Okay, that is a mitzvah that is, that, uh, that is outlined in this week's parasha. Obviously, there's much more detail, but that's just the point that I you know, uh, pulled out here from the story in the Torah. Now, this does not apply anymore because... This applied in, in times of the temple when there was the Jewish law. <laughs> However, the idea behind this mitzvah can be applied to us. Here we go. You ready? Remember the four the four steps. The killer, unintentional, right? If someone killed it intentionally, then they get punished. It's a intentional killing. Killer unintentional, city of refuge, Levites live there. But also, doesn't it say, like, in number six, those that uh, pursue him and then Right, that's why you need to have a city of refuge, because if you don't have a city of refuge, then the avenger of the blood, which means the family which want to avenge the blood of the victim, they will, they will go ahead and kill him. No, but so, it says, and it strikes him to death, so basically, they kill the killer, right? No, it means, no. lest the avenger of the blood will overtake him and, and he strikes him to death. It's, it's the way the, the Torah talks. It means if you don't have a city of refuge, then the avenger of the blood will chase after him and strike him to death. Okay, what so, was for the killer unintentional? Killer unintentional, city, city of refuge, and the Levites. The Levites lived there. Do we have a Levite here? No, not yet. Okay, so let's do the first step. The first step is a killer. We are not killers, I hope. Nobody here killed anybody. I hope not even unintentionally. You have to be very careful. What? It happens. Unfortunately, some people, they kill someone in a car crash and you can, can't imagine the guilt feelings they have. Poshea, right. So there's lots of details, you know, without getting into how the court dealt with each case. But source number eight. Metaphorically, committing a sin is a form of murder. Don't get scared. We all commit sins. <laughs> Since by sinning we prevent to a certain extent divine life force from entering ourselves and reality at large. What's murder? Mur murder is stopping someone's life. Every time we commit a sin, or let's put it, when we do a mitzvah, we are bringing down godly energy. We're bringing down, uh, you know, like we spoke many times, when we do a mitzvah, we elevate and we transform, we bring a godly energy. A divine energy into the thing, into ourselves. And when we perform a sin, then we are stopping that godly energy. So it's as if we're like killing, we're cutting this off from its source of, of godliness. 
Right, so metaphorically, committing a sin is a form of murder. So in a way, we are all killers. We, we, when we commit a sin, <clears throat> we prevent divine life force from entering ourselves, reality. If we use something, if somebody uses a, um, anything for not a good reason, a pen or, or, a pet or his mouth or to say you know, something not good, in a way, at that time, his body is being is, is living off not not a pure energy, right? Or when someone does a mitzvah, he brings down a good energy. So that's the idea. Now, why is it unintentional? We, a lot of times, we, we do we do sins intentionally. So here comes a beautiful explanation. Source number nine, very deep, but very beautiful. Source number nine. Although the innate goodness in some people is thoroughly hidden. Right? We spoke two weeks ago about Moses, that he told God to look at the essence of every Jew. Every Jew has a neshama, has a soul, which is a piece of God. Now, source 9. Although the innate goodness in some people is thoroughly hidden, nevertheless, because goodness constitutes our very essence, if our essence is a piece of God, it must be good, therefore, trace of the person's concealed goodness inevitably must, must find some expression. He has inside of him goodness and that is that he has it, it's his very essence. There must be some trace of that goodness. It must be expressed somewhat. Accordingly, there must be a favorable way to view any individual in as much as his truest identity is the goodness that is at his core. Because his core is goodness, there must be some way to view, maybe not perfectly, but there must be some favorable thing to say about the person, which that is an expression of his core goodness. If this goodness has not been identified by the members of the Sanhedrin, the verdict of that court cannot be applied to this defendant. When a court judges a person, they judge, especially in a Jewish court, they judge the person. Okay? So a person committed a sin. No one's saying that he did something he didn't do something wrong. He did something wrong. But the court has to, excuse me, has to be able to see the entire person. And if the members of the court cannot find even one favorable view of him, doesn't mean that that has to be the verdict. But there has to be at least one person could at least think of something good to say. Why he shouldn't, you know, why he shouldn't be guilty. Doesn't mean that he doesn't have to, that he has to fully agree with that. It doesn't mean the other judges have to agree. But somebody, they have to voice some sort of favorable view of the person, which that is, that favorable view is an expression of his good, of the good, of his core goodness. Now, there's other parts of him. His core is goodness, but there are other things about him. And that's why he did a sin, and that's why he, 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 will, he, will, he should be found guilty. But if nobody can see any expression of his goodness, then this court, the members of this court, cannot judge him. Maybe try another court. Not that there's something wrong with these judges, but for whatever reason, they cannot see the, uh, any expression of his goodness, they cannot be the ones to judge him because they're not judging him. They, can, they cannot see his full being. They don't see him fully. That is the way the Rebbe explains this halacha. It's fascinating. Of course, it's because the Torah says it. But this is a, a way of explaining it and the way the Rebbe looks at a Jew, that a Jew has goodness. And therefore, if nobody, a Jew, a Jew can sin. A person can do bad. He can make choices. He has free choice. But they're also mixed into that action. There must be an expression of who he really is. <coughs> and that expression is by finding something favorable about him. Right? That leads us to number 10. A man commits a transgression only if a spirit of folly enters him. He deep down has an neshama. He is good. It's just that something overcomes him. That's what the Talmud tells us. Inasmuch as the Jewish people are intrinsically connected to God, it is totally unnatural for a Jew to sin. Therefore, God considers the murder unintentional. When we do sin, when we murder and we cut off something from divine life force, it is unintentional that it's not who we really are. Maybe we're doing it, of course, we, and, and sometimes a person can do a sin intentionally, knows what he's doing. 
but that's not who he really, really is. There's something that comes over him, it comes over him, whether it's influences from his family, whether he grew up in an environment that he didn't learn about it, he's uneducated, he doesn't know, or he's just used to a certain lifestyle, or he's, there's a big temptation, right? Whatever it is, but it's a certain spirit that comes over him. That's not who he really is. So that is why, once that's the, we have the first two steps, we, when we commit a sin, and, or we, we stop from doing a mitzvah, we, it, it is a form of murder, but it is unintentional because that's not who we really are. And we see that from this halacha, this law, which is learned out from our parsha, that if the whole court agrees unanimously that he is guilty, then they do not see the depth and the, the essence of, of this Jew. And therefore, they, they cannot be the ones to, to uh, judge him. Yes? No. It doesn't say you're forgiven. It doesn't say that. If that if the other if the other judges say that he's found guilty and one person finds something favorable, he's gonna be killed. He's gonna be punished for his sins. Because it doesn't say you're forgiven. It says you you are accountable for your actions. But this law teaches us that deep down we have something good. It doesn't mean, that's why metaphorically, right, we're trying to compare the laws of the city of refuge, we're going to finish yet, to us, to our service to God. And therefore, when we commit sins, but when we commit a sin, we consider unintentionally, you know, you're right, actually, it is connected to forgiveness. We'll get to it in a second. That is why we can really get forgiveness from God, because Deep down, that's not what we really wanted to do. We have an neshama, and, I, and we, what, what forgiveness is about is that we dig deep into who we really are, and our real connection to God, like like Moses did. How, how did Moses get forgiveness for the Jews? We spoke about this two weeks ago. Remember? How did he get forgiveness? Because he said, "God, look at the essence. We are your children. We have an neshama. We are we are just your children." And that's the same thing here. We'll get to that. But so far, we have what is what is we're matching the four steps. Sin is, is a form of murder and it's unintentional because that's not who we really are. Now, what is the city of refuge? So what should we do? We committed a sin. We did it unintentional. Where should I go? What should I do? Comes Chassidus and tells us number 11. There is a city of refuge. Now, well, there's no cities. New York is not one of the cities of refuge. But there's a city of refuge in time. This haven, we're in source 11. This haven in time is the month of Elul. An aisle in time, a sanctum for introspection and self-assessment. To look inside of ourselves. To assess ourselves for atonement and, for, and rehabilitation. It is a place to which we might flee from our entanglements of material life. To restore the sovereignty of our true will over our lives. That's forgiveness. That we go deep down. Who is our core? Let's go to the core. We have to go to the core of who we really are. Of course... We're not talking here of somebody who killed somebody and therefore they had their certain punishments. That we're talking about if we missed a mitzvah or we didn't, you know, we're, there we, we all have room to improve. And the month of Elul is the city of refuge. That's the time, the time, the ir miklat, as they say in Hebrew. Ir miklat, the city of refuge is a time, it's auspicious time when Hashem is extra close and it's a good time when we can assess ourselves and, and protect ourselves <clears throat> from the entanglements of material life. Ir Miklat, city of what? Ir Miklat. Oh, oh Miklat. In, in, uh, oh. Unfortunately, now in Israel, they have to make use of the Miklat. Miklat is a bomb shelter. I, had to, I was in them. All over Israel, they have bomb shelters. It's called Miklat. And that's where it comes from. In the Torah, it says Miklat. Miklat means refuge, a city that absorbs, a city that, that takes in and protects. How do you spell Miklat? Mem Kuf. Mem Kuf Lamed Tes Miklat and in in and in, uh, in Israel they have it all over bomb shelters and <clears throat> that's what it is and that's the month of Elul it's a time of shelter it's a time when we can it's a time for rehabilitation now that's the third step the city of refuge is the month of Elul who lived in the cities of refuge the Levites what does that represent. The Levites, as we spoke, were the representatives of God. They didn't have their cities. They didn't work the land the whole, the whole year. What did they do? They were the, the, um, 
doing the services in the temple, singing the psalms and doing the sacrifices. They were the teachers. They were the rabbis of the time. They were the teachers. They were the spiritual mentors, the spiritual leaders. And that is represented that what happens in the month of Elul? What happens in the city of refuge of time? Source number 12. The Talmud tells us the words of Torah are a refuge. When we study the Torah, when we are immersed in its study, as we're doing right now, we are studying Torah, we are protected from the machinations, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Of the evil, what does it mean literally? The things that go on. Of the evil inclination. Torah study also purifies us, inspiring us to regret our past failings and make amends for them. When in the month of Elo, so it's not just, I'm entering the month, I'm in the city of refuge, I'm good for, I'm, I'm going to be good. In this city of refuge, who did, the, who did this killer rub shoulders with? Who did he spend time with? With Levites. He immersed in Torah study. He, he was around the rabbis all the time. He, was, he had Torah books and he was able to pray and say psalms. That is the idea of the month of Elul. It is the time when we're in the city of refuge and we add in saying songs, we add in Torah study, and we add in good Torah and in studying and doing mitzvahs. That is the month of Elul. That are the four steps. The first step, first step is a killer. When we commit a sin or we refrain from a mitzvah that we can better ourselves in, that is the idea. Number two, unintentional. Yes, every time we do this, that's not who we really are. Something just comes over us for whatever reason. But who is who are we really? We are God's children and we want to do what Hashem wants from us. We want to connect to Hashem. So it's unintentional. What do we go? Where do we where do we go? To the city of refuge. We go to the month of Elul. And what do we do in the month of Elul? We connect with the Levites, which represents the Torah. We connect to the Torah. We add increase in studying Torah. We do another mitzvah and another mitzvah. That is the idea. And that going back to the story of Rabbi Mendel Futterfas, it's a time when we look at ourselves. We look for the, for the deck of cards, and maybe it's in ourselves. We can say, oh, I'm not doing this because our rabbi, he, is such a, he gives such bad sermons. Or my Hebrew school teacher wasn't nice to me. Or uh, this, you know, uh, I can blame all kinds of people. I can look for the cards in everybody else's pockets. Or I can say, I'm, it's, my, it's the deck of cards, I'm going to look for it in myself. Like they say, uh, I read once a little story. There was a, a woman that she lived in a apartment building, and she would go out every morning to do. Uh, she go out to, to hang her laundry on her on her porch on the you know and balcony. balcony and there's glass around, and she would look over to her neighbor, and and she would see that the clothes are all dirty, and she thought to herself, "There's such a you know." messy person uh, what kind of housewife is she? she everything's so she does the laundry and everything comes out black you know lines black everywhere and she always thought of her as you know not, not a not a clean person and one time she had a friend over and she brought her to the balcony and she said look look at the neighbor like i don't, I don't get it. she's so messy and the neighbor looks and she says those clothes are perfectly clean your window is filthy <laughs> right? so we can look at other people and see faults and blame other people, but it's time to clean our own windows, clean your own glasses. This is what we were talking about Friday night about mixing into someone else's business, right? That was, that was discussed yeah, okay. Friday night. So this is the same thing. Mind your own right, business. mind your own business. Mind your own business. Not just mind your own business, but sometimes you might think that somebody else is at fault, and really your glasses are just dirty. Start with yourself. Look in your own pockets and. It's not your wife that thinks that she's Mrs. Schwartz. You have a problem. You're not Napoleon. You know, you're just a, a regular guy. <laughs> and one more point, point number 13, which I, I found this year. I haven't, I haven't seen this before, preparing in this class, and uh, really um, caught my attention. How many cities of refuge were there? Six. Six. Source number 13. In the verse, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. There are six words. The spiritual cities of refuge of a Jew are these six words. Through absolute submission to the yoke of heaven, a Jew achieves his forgiveness for his iniquities. These six words represent God. We believe in one God. Hashem We had a few weeks ago, we spoke about this verse. Hashem Okein Hashem Echad. That is where we find our refuge in this month. It's a time to reconnect 
or we, we always connected, but to solidify our, with, our connection with God, brought out in these six words. That is the first lesson that we see from Ir Miklat. Let's continue. We see from the city of refuge. That's the general idea. Let's get to, to two details from this, from this uh, mitzvah. Source 14. Then Moses, this is a verse in Deuteronomy. Then Moses decided to separate these uh, three cities on the side of the Jordan towards the sunrise. So what side is that? East. East, right? So that's the side that Moses was on. He was on the eastern border, right? The, most of the Jews lived on the western border. Today, Jordan occupies the eastern border. And Moses set aside three cities. This is the Torah. And then the Torah continues. This is the Torah which Moses placed before the children of Israel. That's what the verse says. And it's interesting because it's, it says these words. This, this, we say this every time, you know, in the synagogue when we pick up the Torah. Right? Yes. You remember that? Like after reading the Torah, somebody's honored to lift the Torah and show it to everybody. And everybody says, It comes from right here. These are the, this is the translation. This is the Torah which Moses placed before the children of Israel. That verse comes right after the, the, the previous verse that Moses decided to separate the city, the three cities on the side of the Jordan towards the sunrise. What's the connection? There's so many Torah, things in the Torah. Why is this is the Torah? Right? This is this a good question? Good question. <laughs> Moses decided to separate these three cities. It doesn't say after Moses uh, came down with the tablet. It says Moses decided to separate three cities and this is the Torah which Moses placed before the children of Israel. So one explanation is based on what we just said that the cities of refuge, this is the Torah which Moses gave to the Jews because the Torah is is the city of refuge, right? When we study the Torah. But let me tell you a deeper explanation. The fact is, what well, it says in source 15, the three in Jordan did not serve as refuge until the three in Israel were established. So Moses designated the three cities in Jordan, but they did not act. They did not, they weren't useful. They, they weren't in, uh, how do you say? They weren't, they weren't serving as refuge. It didn't work. He designated the cities. It says uh, Golan and different cities that, that, that were set, you know, designated. But it didn't actually work yet. It only started working after Moses died in Jordan. Joshua and the Jews crossed over the Jordan River. Seven years they conquered the land. Seven years they settled the land. And then Joshua designated the next three cities. And once those three cities were working, now they had six. And now they all started to work. Right? How did they cross the Jordan River? I mean, there were no bridges at the time, but still, like, good question. It's not exactly important for what we're saying now. So, we could, I, I could answer it a little later. It's the whole story. But Moses did what he did, but it didn't work. At least for 14 years until Joshua came into the land and designated the next three cities. But Moses still did it. He didn't say, why should I designate these cities? It's not going to work anyways for another 14 years. Why should I designate it? I'm not doing a half a job. I do something. I'm going to do it all the way. If I'm going to designate the cities, I want it to work. If it's not going to work, God, somebody else should do the job. Moses didn't say that. Moses did what he could. Source 16. This is an explanation from the Kli Yakar. Um, written a few hundred years ago. Fascinating, uh, beautiful commentary, uh, commentator on the Torah. Uh, I, forgot, I forgot his name right now. Lunsish or something. Moses, source, source 16. Moses' example teaches us that in life, our approach should not be the attitude that it's either everything or nothing. The most faultless person in history who spoke face to face with God began the City of Refuge project, but he never witnessed its completion. He, was, he started designating the cities, but he didn't see the completion. The same thing goes for King David. King David in Source 17. King David from the Book of Chronicles, in the writings, part of the Torah. King David knew that he would not build the Holy Temple, yet he amassed gold in order to facilitate its eventual completion. David worked so hard to fight off all the enemies of Israel. And he was so eager. He yearned to build a temple for God in Jerusalem. He even bought Mount Moriah. That, mount, that mountain, he actually acquired it. He bought it himself. 
He wanted to build a temple, but God told him, your hands are full of blood, you were involved with war, the temple is a temple of peace, your son Solomon will build a temple. David didn't say, okay, I'm not building the temple, excuse me, Solomon will take care of everything from beginning to end. Excuse me. The, 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 the Torah, the, in Chronicles, it, it describes the whole chapter, all of the work that David did, he amassed gold and silver, thousands and thousands of, uh, of wood and money. He did everything. He made all the blueprints. He did everything he could until the actual building of the temple. Speaking of gold, speaking of gold have you ever heard that the Solomon Islands were named that because the gold for the temple came, came from, there? from those islands? Have you ever heard that? I have not. No. You know where the Solomon Islands are? Out in the Pacific. And who's supposed to have brought the gold there? I don't know. This is this is what oh, I read. Okay. You cannot ask me. That's why oh, I'm asking him. Okay. I never heard of the Solomon Islands. There, I want to from there. I have never not heard of the Solomon Islands. I would love to hear about it in a couple yeah. minutes. So King David could have said the same thing. He could have said, "I'm not building a temple. I want it to be King David's temple. If King Solomon's building it, I have nothing to do with it." He didn't say that. He did what he could. He didn't do a perfect job. So is it okay to be imperfect? Yes. Moses is teaching us, this is the Torah. Moses decided to separate three cities and this is the Torah which Moses gave the Jewish people. Telling the Jewish people is such a fundamental lesson. It's not all or nothing. When it comes the month of Elul, it comes the high holiday, someone could say, I don't know how to read a Siddur in Hebrew. Maybe my prayers is not accepted in Russian or in English. I don't know what's happening. I have, I'm not perfect. I don't keep 100% kosher. What is it going to make a difference if one time I'm going to keep a little kosher? Why should I come to the Shabbos meal if I'm not keeping Shabbos? Right? I don't keep the whole Shabbos. Moses teaches us, this is the Torah which Moses placed for the children of Israel. Look at me. I separated these cities even though I didn't do the rest. I didn't do the full job. I'm starting the project. That is the lesson, the lesson of the Parsha, which has to do with the time of the year. It comes the month of Elul. It's a time when we reconnect to Hashem. It's a city of refuge. It's important for us to know that it's not all or nothing. And unfortunately, there are lots of people out there that the way they look at a Jew is either you're all or nothing, whether you're Shomer Shabbos or you're not Shomer Shabbos. And that's not the way we label a Jew. Every Jew has so many good things that they do and so many mitzvahs and everybody on their level. There can be a Jew that keeps one hour of Shabbos. He decides to come to a Friday night meal and celebrate Shabbos and dive in the evening prayers. So what, in the morning he's not ready for that? So he's not ready. One day, Joshua will come. One day, he'll get there. And if he doesn't get there, that's God's business. But keeping Shabbos at night is also keeping Shabbos. It's not all or nothing. You light a candle this week, Shabbos candles. So maybe not every week, if it works for you in the summer and not in the winter. One step at a time. One step at a time. Do what you can. It's not all or nothing. And this is a very important lesson that Moses is teaching us. So you can't read it in Hebrew, so you read it in English. You can't, you can't say everything, so you say a little. You can't put phone every day. Pick one day a week. Pick a little bit, but do something. It's not all or nothing. Moses and David didn't say, the heck with it. I'm not a perfect Jew anyways. I'm not even going to start. When we do a little bit, that's who we really are. That's deep down our neshama. And every little step counts. Every little thing we do, that is who we really are. So is it, is it okay to be imperfect? Yes. Moses wasn't perfect, and we are not either. But we do what we can. And that, is a, and that is a message that, uh, that uh, it's, not, it's not me. This is the Kliyakar. This is what he's writing. I'm just sharing it with you. And that is the second point. Comes the third and final point. Proud and loud. The killer, imagine, he's chopping his wood. This is the, the, this is the case that the Torah says. He has an axe, he's chopping wood. And the, what's it called? The axe from the, oh, yeah. ha, the handle, right? It disconnects, flies off, and goes and kills somebody. Unintentionally, kills somebody. He runs down from the ladder, and he's fleeing to the city of refuge. Some guy's chasing him with a, with a knife, wants to kill him, right? What's going to happen? He's, 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 he's running. He's not going to know, where is the city of refuge? He never even heard it. Yeah, he read in the Torah. He heard, uh, he saw in the paper, there's a city of refuge somewhere. He doesn't know where it is. And this guy's chasing him. If he's going to get lost, his life might be over. So source 18, the Rambam Maimonides tells us, 
The Jewish court is obligated to construct roads leading to the cities of refuge. They should be maintained and widened. Widen. It said it had to be about 45 feet wide. Wow. That's how wide the roads had to be. It had to be very accessible. And it said, I just, there's a lot more details, but they had, they had to do repair work every year. They would send out messengers. They always made sure things were good. This is implied by the verse in our parsha. You shall prepare the road for yourselves. You have to prepare it. It needs to be very well paved. Signs stating refuge, refuge should be written at intersections. They had uh, road signs. Miklat, miklat. Refuge, refuge. This way, this way. They had signs. The road, the, the directions was perfectly clear. There was no GPSs then. Everything was perfect. He dropped, he, he ran down his ladder. He knew exactly where to go. He didn't have to ask anybody anything. He knew where to go. And that way his life was able to be saved. What's the lesson for this, from this, in our analogy here? Source 19. Don't make it hard for the, for the person fleeing to get to the city. Make it easy. The lesson for us, in our city, we're fleeing to, to the month of Elul. We're fleeing to God. What's the lesson? Source 19. Let me ask you a question. There were signs. How many killers do you think there were? There weren't that many killers. Unintentional. How, how often does it happen? Right? And for them, the court, the, the best day after the Jewish court sent out every year to make sure these roads from all over Israel and in the Jordan were paved and there were signs. Everything was perfect. It was, a, it was part of the budget, you know, it was a lot of money to keep, uh, here in Sige were suffering for who knows uh, for the roads. And there, for a couple of killers, they put up all of these signs and everything. Let me ask you, you know how many Jews pilgrimage, pilgrim, they came from all over to, to Jerusalem every year? At least three times a year, every Jew was obligated to come to the temple on the three holidays, Passover, Shavuos, and Sukkos. And they came with all their animals, with their families, at least three times a year. If they had an additional reason to come to the temple, to bring up any kind of sacrifice, for whatever reason, they had to come more. And we don't have any record that the Torah says, and the Torah says numerous times, it's an obligation to come up. And we don't have any record of the Torah saying, you should prepare, prepare the roads for the Jews to come up to the temple. Why not? Millions of Jews. You know how many Jews lived in Israel? Millions and millions. Three million Jews entered Israel, and they lived there for 850 years straight. We spoke about this. They multiplied like, like, uh, like Jews. <laughs> All right? Multiply like Jews. And there was no, we have no record of any signs. Why is that? Source 19. The signs eliminate the need for the murderer to talk to people and the possible consequences which such conversation might produce. Making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, by contrast, is a very important mitzvah. Making it necessary to, for people to stop and ask for directions will cause conversations about the mitzvah of pilgrimage. Imagine the person has to ask, hey, where is, how do I get to the city of refuge? Oh, why are you, oh, you're a killer, right? And by the way, whether they killed unintentionally, and even if they killed intentionally, they first went to the city of refuge. And then, once he was in the city of refuge, and then they would call him from there, and then they would go through his case and deal with it. But any person that killed, any kind of killing, they went straight to the city of refuge. So that... So that the avenger can't kill him right away. And then they would deal with him. Well, was, it, was it unintentional? They would keep him there. And if it was intentional, they would be, he would be sentenced to whatever, whatever punishment. Imagine there wasn't signs. The guy would be asking, Where, where's the city of refuge? And everybody would be talking about, you know, you know, we heard this guy, this guy killed, and that guy killed. And everybody would be talking about crimes all day. Right? And what happens when the crime, everyone's talking about crimes? Hey, I want some attention. I'm going to do a crime. That's what happens. You open the TV, what do you hear? You hear about this guy was stabbed and that guy was stabbed and people, it gets in the news. Everybody, this crime, everyone, this was what's happening. Everyone's talking about bad stuff and it's not good for many reasons. But when the Jews are going up to the temple, it's a beautiful thing. We're going to see God. We're going to bring a sacrifice. We're going to connect to Hashem. We're going to Jerusalem. If there would be signs, everybody would just do their own thing. There was no signs. Because if you come standing to such as, how do I get to Jerusalem? Oh, you're going to Jerusalem. Wow. You go, what happened? You, had a, you have a good reason. You're going to Jerusalem. And, that, and everyone's asking each other, how do I get to Jerusalem? And they made conversation. I made a beautiful thing of a mitzvah. This is teaching us that when we do a mitzvah, that's what we have to be proud about. That's what we should be talking about. All the other things we can do quietly. Somebody killed, he's quiet. He follows the signs. He does what he has to. He goes to the city of refuge. Somebody that does a mitzvah, we say, did you hear? I went to the synagogue. We had a, we had a, 
uh, TGI, we, we, we celebrated together a beautiful community. I went to a Torah class. I, I, I gave some charity. You know, I'm proud to be a supporter of, of, this in, of this institution or of this cause. And when other people see that, oh, you, this guy is doing this, or maybe I should do the same. It must be a good thing. If, every, if every, all we hear about is the bad stuff and all the crime and all the terrible things, then that's going to be the atmosphere and that's what people are going to do. The Torah tells us to have a TV, to have a, a station which is just good news. I think they have that. Just good stuff going on. Got just good news. Not about the crimes. The good stuff. We have to celebrate and publicize the good stuff, the good things that people do. And that creates an atmosphere of goodness. And when we do a mitzvah, we should be proud and loud. And not just that, we have to be the signs for good things. Source 20. We should all consider ourselves signposts, whose job is to point to others, others in the direction of goodness. We should be living signposts, reaching out to our fellows and awakening them to the fact that there is such a thing as a holy divine life that they should pursue. We have to be those signposts. There are no signposts for mitzvahs. Only for city. We have to be that signpost. We have to show people. We have to show people not just for ourselves, but we should be a living signpost and talk to others and be an example for others. So these are the ideas that we see in the Parsha. Going back to the beginning, that the lessons of the Parsha have to do with the time of the year that we are in. We find ourselves in the month of Elul. The month leading up to Rosh Hashanah, a time of introspection, alil, to serve, to, to tour ourselves, to take stock of what's going on, to pay up the, our bills with God, and to become one step a little bit closer. And we learn that, the lesson of the Parsha, talks about the city of refuge, killing unintentionally, city of refuge, the Levites, when we do a sin, or we don't do sin, when we, when we want to do another mitzvah, and it's, if we don't do it, it's unintentional. It's not who we really are. There must be an expression of our goodness, and that's why the court, which doesn't see it, is not good. We connect we, this, in the city of refuge, the haven, the, the month of Elul, and we immerse in the Torah. That's the city of the Levites, the time of Torah, mitzvahs, charity, psalms, all these kind of good things to connect to God. And we do it even if we're not going to be perfect, just like Moses. He did the three cities even if they're not going to work right away. We do it, we do what we can, and we're proud of what we do. How did they get to the Jordan? If you look in the book of Joshua, the whole story, many chapters, how they crossed over. It was similar to the splitting of the sea when they came out of Egypt. whole story that the priests, they had the ark, and they flew over the Jordan River. It's described oh, in the beginning of... This, the water yes, the water splits. It says that. Now, it's, it was, it, the Jordan River is not so wide. It's maybe... Okay, but still. Yes, it's recorded there, the whole story. Right, okay. Uh, the, uh, the question, I mean, going back to number one. Okay, somebody commits like cold blood murder and uh, 70 judges can't find anything in him. And, and he's a queer, all right? And then, on the other hand, like somebody else, like, killed somebody unintentionally and then he's been judged. And then again, maybe somebody say, oh, I remember, he did something good. He, I mean, he maybe helped somebody, like, whatever it is. And then he's basically then, according to this, he's found guilty and, and he's been killed, right? No. No, someone's unintentional. Someone kills unintentionally. They just have to... Don't go on to the One second, I didn't say it. They say the person and who kills unintentionally stays in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Whichever high priest was, was serving at that time when he killed, it's a whole explanation for itself, but when the high priest dies, he can go back home. No, no, but then, okay. Right, you're, you're saying, saying it's not fair. You're saying it's not fair. It's capital punishment. So if somebody, if nobody finds anything good in him, he's, he is set free, right? Which case? The first case? The first case. He, uh, is he set free, or, uh, or oh, maybe there's another oh, court, and maybe another court can try another, another uh, set of judges, but this set of judges cannot, cannot judge him. Okay, but then, but you saying there's still a capital punishment. There's, uh, he there's can't get no. that. There may be a capital punishment, but it cannot be carried out because the judges cannot give a verdict on this person. Okay, but on somebody, on somebody else, like say... They found something good in him, like... Uh, right. If they, then, then yes, he, then, he, then he gets... If that's what the judges decide later on, that he gets killed, then he will get killed. 
somebody's... Okay. Saying it's not fair. Well, in, in, in the case, yeah, I mean, somebody's... But it's not fair for him either because... Listen, at the end of the day, is God's law. This is not saying necessarily like, no, the reason. This is God's law. But this is an insight into the law that God said. A lesson from the law, if you can say. One way of, of looking at it. At the end of the day, it's God's will. You know, that's what God decided. Is it always fair? No, but it's more fair than not. Because more people got off. It says that a Jewish court didn't. If a Jewish court killed somebody once in seven years, they were called a they were called a murderous court. They usually found uh, either it didn't happen very often, and they always there's lots of steps for someone to be killed. They had to be warned every time before they 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 killed or did something that there had to be two witnesses there. They had to warn the person. Now, if you're going to do that, we're witnesses, and you're going to be killed, and you're going and this is going to be your punishment. So it, it's not like they, you know, they were just so going rare. killing people. Also, there were other kind of punishments. There was lashes. There was sacrifice that had to be brought. There was. Is it the same? In, I mean, in, in in Israel, in the state of Israel, I mean, for all these years, is like how many people? Like Eichmann was. That's it. Heard, and and was only it was somebody else, right? I mean, just or, or like one or two people, like in the whole like whatever, like fifty years. Of, Right, you're saying Eichmann had a unanimous. Uh, I'm sure they had a, they had a lawyer. They had a lawyer for Eichmann defending him. No, no, he had a lawyer, but he was found. I mean, he was fine. So, to, to, so I'm saying, so this this case doesn't apply to him because they found some sort. First of all, he wasn't Jewish, but they found something favorable about him. This case, but I mean, in Israel they don't. Send Israel doesn't follow. They don't have the Is the state of Israel does not follow the Torah law? It's Jewish people. But they don't follow the letter of the law. They don't follow the Torah law. They follow the, the law. Thank you so much. If we followed the Torah law, we wouldn't be at war all the time. No, I'm saying the Israeli... The state of Israel has their own secular law. It's not Maybe some of it is based on the Torah, but it's not 100% the Torah law. But they didn't even say the don't send people to death. I mean, there's just one or two people like that. Right. Second law. Jewish court, Jewish court, make an edict and massacre.